This is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome back to Revelations Radio News. This week, Andrew and I discussed the coming year of 2013 with our good friend James Corbett. The first part of this episode was cut off due to technical difficulties. You didn't miss much other than my announcement that I was uh, newly engaged and going to be married in the coming year, uh, as well as James Corbett's announcement that he also would be, uh, he's, he's already married, but he would be expecting this year along with Andrew Hoffman. So, After we exchanged pleasantries and congratulated each other, we uh, got into the conversation, and that is all that you missed. I think the first question I asked James, what's coming up in the new year? What are are some of the uh, fake stories that the media will continue to run with? Um, If you don't know who James is, go check out James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. He's a real professional. Uh, We appreciate him coming on the show, and and especially for staying uh, overtime with us. We only scheduled an hour and had him for much longer. Uh, it was a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Emphasize and yada, yada, yada. So welcome, James. Well, thank you for having me on today. I'm uh, I'm very appreciative of it, and I'm glad to be here, as always. Thank you, guys. Excellent. Excellent. Well, predictions are, are hard to make, but, you know, we're going to put you in the tough position of having to make them, and we'll throw ours in here and there. But uh, what do you think, uh, in light of kind of what's been happening over these last few weeks, um, what do you think is going to uh, some of the stories that are ongoing storylines that the mainstream media will tend to emphasize or continue to emphasize as we head into 2013? I know last you actually predicted that there would be a lot more uh, emphasis on censorship and, uh, you know, soap and pivot was the big thing at the end of 2011. I think you were dead on. I think that it's a little less publicized, but that's still kind of the, the, the flavor is to, to bring down the free speech on the internet. What are some other things heading into 2013 you think may uh, continue to happen? Well, I think there's there's maybe two different senses of what you're asking there, and I think they're important to differentiate because in one sense there's the, the underlying trends that will actually develop in reality, and then there's the trends that, that are going to be storylines in the, in the press, in the news media, and I think those two are not always uh, linked. I think reality and the news media do not always go hand in hand. So um, I think it's much, much more difficult to predict what is going to be the sort of storylines that, that continue on into 2013. So, for example, in 2012, I did predict that censorship would be a big issue, and I think it still continues to be. But, of course, it's not a major news story. It's not something they're reporting on and there's not a lot of headlines on so so in terms of what is going to be a big storyline for 2013 that is perhaps one of the most difficult things i think for us to really predict because it can just turn on a dime it can turn for absolutely unexpected reasons and it really depends what they choose to focus on so for example we saw the incredible absolute uh, 24/7 incessant coverage of the Trayvon uh, Trayvon shooting in in Florida there um, which again is something that you wouldn't have been able to predict at all in terms of the specifics of that event or even that that particular 
almost kind of, you know, race war inciting type coverage would have been one of those things that happened in 2012. But then again, it came and went and it's kind of gone off the radar completely now. So those are the types of things that are just absolutely impossible to predict. In terms of uh, what's happening right now that will likely continue on into 2013, obviously I think we have not heard the end of the gun control debate that is obviously raging on right now. I think that's going to be dominating headlines for the next uh, several weeks. And the, the fiscal cliff slash debt ceiling limit Kabuki theater that's going on right now is definitely going to be amped up in the next few weeks. But after that, I think things become very murky. And again, it really depends what they want to choose to focus on. Because again, the way the media functions is whatever they focus on is what becomes the news so they really get to choose which stories blow up and which don't so i couldn't really predict what's going to ultimately at the end of 2013 what we're going to be looking at back at as the biggest stories of the year sure i think you kind of point out the, the flaw in my question there hey james corbett who's an actual journalist please guess what these uh, actors on television are going to be saying in the in the coming 365 days Yes, I mean to to a certain extent, it's 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 somewhat difficult to predict. But in terms of the actual trends that are actually going to make a difference, I'm I'm, I'm working on that for my first newsletter of the the new year. I'm going to be doing uh, what trends to look for in 2013, and I think at this point, economically, I think we're looking at um, taxes. Taxation is going to be an issue, of course, around the world, but uh, specifically in America, as people start to realize that a whole bunch of new taxes are going to be kicking in in the new year, a lot of them related to the Obamacare. And I think we're going to see Obama starting to push for some more taxes, um, because now that he is a lame duck president and doesn't have to worry about re-election, I think there's going to be more sort of legacy building and trying to uh, to push forward more of an agenda. And we're going to see that. I imagine we're going to start at least hearing about the the possibility of a VAT tax, a value-added tax of some sort, and probably some sort of carbon tax is going to be on the table or at least put mm. on the table mm. in the conversation, certainly in the next few years, perhaps in this, in this coming year. So uh, we'll see we'll see how that develops. But I think that's going to be one of the major trends. Also, I, I still think that uh, the currency wars are going to be a huge thing that are going to be amping up in and ramping up in the new year. I don't know if the uh, the media is going to be covering it. I'm not sure how they'll cover it or if they cover it at all. But I really do see this as as sort of the underlying part of all of this quantitative easing that's going on around the world is they're going to uh, to basically what they are doing is trying to devalue their currencies. The Japanese, the Americans, the the Europeans, everyone is trying to devalue their currencies to make their exports more more viable um, overseas. And they're just engaging in this quantitative easing to infinity. And it's basically a race to the bottom. Um, mm. And since everyone's doing it at the same time, it kind of almost balances each other out. And the uh, the devaluation isn't as apparent. But uh, But someone's eventually going to try to release some sort of nuclear option to plunge their currency even further. And uh, and this is, I think, a worrying trend for the uh, the global economy and something that's definitely going to pick up pace in the new year, especially now that Japan has just elected a new prime minister who's basically vowed to do exactly that, to try to get the yen as low as possible. So we'll, we'll see how that develops, but it's going to be, um, whether or not it gets covered, it's going to be one of the big stories of the year, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, did you have any thoughts, Andrew? Is your audio okay? Well, as long as you guys can hear me, okay, I, w I won't worry too much about it. I was having a hard time. Okay. Um, it's It just sounds a little choppy. I can understand both of you. Okay. 
Well, I think okay, go ahead. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's right on. I think it's you know I, I keep I think the tendency, especially with predictions, is you kind of think everything is going to happen this year, and then it never does. Um, but the overall trends, like James was saying, the currency devaluation, uh, just kind of this overall reliance on central banks and the power of central banks continuing to grow and grow is kind of an ongoing trend that that will obviously continue in 2013 um, until it reaches a crisis point, a crisis point which they've planned on and intend to bring it to at some point. So so it's it's kind of one of those and I think this the same thing geopolitically uh you have all these different possible you know crisis points around the world that have been engineered and intentionally antagonized and uh it it's not certain that any of them will really catch fire this year but um that's that's out there as a possibility and obviously they're uh the powers that that B are, are planning for that. Sure. Sure. I, I think I was uh, saying to you before the show, Andrew, that every, every prediction show I've listened to since 2008, you know, includes somebody who says hyperinflation, hyperinflation in the coming year. And it, it's kind of, you know, lost its effect, but I think that, you know, James has been, you know, really taking a look at the currency wars and, and how that has been, I, you know, I've never seen anybody look at it like that. We, we, we always talk about, oh, no, you know, it's right back to the Weimaraner Republic. But I think, James, you've done a great job actually just looking at, uh, you know, how they're racing each other to the bottom and they and no one can get too far ahead or else everyone will see, you know, the ev- you know, the evidence that of what's happening around us here. And, you know, it's a, a the a frog in the kettle approach, I think. Right, exactly. And I, I've been guilty of that in previous years as well, thinking that it's all going to be a hyperinflationary death spiral that happens all at once. But there are many different ways for the collapse to play out. And in fact, deflation is one possibility that's yes. counterintuitive, but can happen um, with when you have direct stimulus spending in the economy. And Japan is the example of that. because. That's right. Back in uh, the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, when the real estate asset bubble popped here in Japan, the uh, Japan in the, for the past 20 years basically has been in this sort of recessionary spending uh, cycle where they keep spending money into the economy. And then just when things are, are starting to normalize, they, they ease off the gas and things spiral down again. And uh, they've been doing this for a couple decades. And really one of the things they've learned is that they're in a de- deflationary death cycle here where it's uh, almost impossible to get inflation going. And so what that ultimately amounts to is the government spending is canceling out spending that would have taken place in the private sector if the government hadn't been spending. So mm-hmm. you have all these construction projects and things which the government is spending, but that means that there are private businesses that are not creating that that value in the economy normally so that it actually ultimately ends up leading to deflation and uh, that's kind of uh, counterintuitive perhaps but i think that's another possibility for collapse because japan is just i think a couple of decades more advanced in this whole uh, decay cycle than the u.s is and it's it's one way that we could see the u.s economy going so there's a lot of different possibilities for that and i'm certainly open to exploring some of those more thoroughly in the new year. Sure, sure. I couldn't agree more. We actually tried to schedule Mike Shedlock to come on and do some predictions for the upcoming year. And Mish is uh, the Global Economic Economic Analysis blog. And he 
always is, you know, kind of, you know, pointing out to people that inflation is much less likely than deflation and, you know, points at Japan and, 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 and various things as well. So, yeah, I think you're definitely on the right track. If that doesn't happen, it's something that we should at least keep in mind. Exactly right. And uh, just to touch on the geopolitical aspects, um, I think that also there's definitely going to be something that will happen with regards to the Syria crisis this yeah, year. Yeah. But I truly, I can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be. I really highly doubt it's going to be any type of invasion or full-scale military incursion into Syria, but something will happen, and I would be surprised if uh, if Assad is still in charge of the government in 20, at the end of 2013. I think something is going to happen, but I again, I can't imagine how that's going to play out. Right. I, f I feel the same way, like, how in the world, you know, would it happen? I've learned so much about Syria from, uh, you know, your work with GRTV and, and the other people that are involved with GRTV. Do you have any predictions on that, Andrew, at all? Well, um, I think one question I'd like to ask James is what role do you think Russia will play in that whole Syria situation? Because my take on it is that they're kind of like pretending like, oh, yes, we're aligned against America and we will we will help you out, Syria, and, and defend against America. But when push comes to shove, I kind of think they'll they'll back down the same way they did in Libya. But what's your take on that? I think that the fundamental difference between the, well, there's a couple I think for Russia in all of this between Libya and Syria is uh, back in Libya, of course, that was when Medvedev was at the helm, and now that Putin is in, at the helm, and Putin is a very different character than Medvedev, and I really don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to back down in that type of confrontation. Um, and having said that, also I think Libya, of course, was not as directly related to Russian military mm -hmm. interests and strategic interests as Syria is. Obviously, uh, there's a naval base that the Russians have in Syria, so it would it would be tantamount to an attack on Russia if they go into Syria, which is why I don't think there's going to be that type of direct military incursion. Uh, having said that, I mean certainly Russia is the block right now, the 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 thing that is blocking that type of military intervention in Syria, and that's both direct and also indirect because Russia has been arming Syria for years, and uh, Syria is one of the most capable militarily in terms of air defense uh, nations on the planet hmm. because of all of the the air defense uh, machinery and equipment and, and guns and munitions that they've received from the the Russians over the years. So that is uh, that is the situation. I don't know if I can see how or why Russia would step down at this point. Um, it would take either some sort of false flag type event, like the chemical weapons that they're now trying to hype up. So obviously they've set the stage for that, but whether or not they'll be able to pull the trigger on that, so, so to speak, I'm not sure. But perhaps they will, and perhaps at, in the face of sort of, you know, if if the entire world is is railroaded along into that, perhaps Russia would back down at that point. Um, and then there's also there's there's an interesting thing that's developing right now where just in the past few weeks, Russia has said vague things like, well, they could imagine how there might be some sort of way in which Assad will, you know, not not be continue to be the ruler of mm -hmm. Syria indefinitely. And of course, the American media is spinning that as saying they've withdrawn their support from Assad. It's a green light for an <laughs> attack, basically, which is just a ridiculous spin. But uh, but that's the kind of thing that can happen as well. Basically, things just get misinterpreted, reinterpreted. Words are put in people's mouths and, and, and they just go ahead with it as if it's a fait accompli. 
So there's a lot of ways that can play out. Again, I can't really yeah. see how it's going to happen. I, I know it, something is going to happen in Syria this year. I can't imagine they're just going to string this along for another year. And if they do, I would see that as a failure for the, the NATO imperialist agenda, because I think the quicker they can they can get rid of this, the better. Although, to a certain extent, they, I think ultimately what will serve their purposes equally well is just to have a destabilized Destab Syria that's in this internal civil war that just can, keeps going, going on and on. So if they can achieve that, perhaps maybe that is their goal. So so again, there's a lot of different ways this will play out for different uh, actors in the in the theater there. We, I think we could just go on and on about Syria for the whole show. I did have one more question for you, though, regarding I, – I have kind of thought – from what I've seen, that that Assad has the support of the Syrian population. That's not the insurgency. Is that kind of the? I know that's kind of a very simplistic view, but is that is that kind of the feeling that you have as well, or is 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 the insurgency actually working? Well, I th I mean I think it's a difficult situation because sure. Syria is so divided along sectarian lines. But I think we can say that. Uh, probably a large portion of the minority of the population that is not Sunni would very much prefer a, an Assad to to whatever Sunni power might come into mm -hmm. in, uh, into play if the, if there's a new government, because obviously there has been this this kind of weird balance of powers for the last few decades under the Assad government and into his father's government, and of course they have been brutal regimes, and I don't support them in any way, shape, or form, but. Uh, because they, they come from the minority Alawite Shiite sect, um, they have had to, they, at the very least, they can't govern with the type of complete iron fist along religious sectarian lines that a Sunni majority would be able to do if they came into power. So there's a lot of Shiites and Christians and others in the country who know that there could be a mass slaughter if the Sunnis come into power. Right. And that's why there is that sort of galvanized, very strong base of support in in the centers of power, um, certainly in Damascus and in other areas of the country that are very staunchly on the side of Assad and probably have good reason to be because there really is the point, the, the, the possibility of a, of a sort of mass slaughter or something something really horrific if the Sunnis really do come to power. So, so it is a very, very delicate situation. And again, it doesn't mean that I'm a supporter of Assad, but sure. certainly um, it's it may be the devil you know might might be better than the devil that that wants to come into power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I think it's another step of the same agenda that that seems to be, uh, you know, as you say, the the NATO imperialist agenda of replacing all these uh, kind of secular Middle Eastern leaders that had achieved through sometimes very brutal means, but it achieved some sort of stability, uh, clearing them out and bringing in um, kind of the, as fanatical of sects of, of Muslims as they can find and claiming that they run the country. Yeah. So I, and I think obviously that sets up more instability in the future and more of an excuse for intervention. So um, I don't know. Do you, do you think that's that's what's going on, or do you think there's um, something else going on? What do you think about that? 
I think I think it's quite obviously what's going on. It's very much the case. That's exactly what happened in Libya, where Gaddafi, again, you can say all you want about how crazy he was and some of the, the ridiculous things he did. At the very least, um, it was more governed along sort of uh, secular lines. There wasn't the type of, I mean, in a deeply divided country with a lot of different tribal divisions there in Libya, it, it was still governed in a, in a centralized way and... and um, and was more or less a coherent government, uh, as opposed to what exists now, which is this constant sectarian strife and infighting and, and racism and all of the things that are rampant there in Libya that have been unleashed because of that. Um, Egypt, again, of course, we see the toppling of Mubarak, who, of course, was a serviceable U.S. puppet for a long time. But what's been what's been ushered into power, the Muslim Brotherhood, who, of course, is another arm of CIA manipulation and intervention to destabilize what's going on in Egypt. And now, of course, what we're seeing in Syria with the, uh, the attempt to overthrow Assad and perhaps put in another radical Sunni Muslim Brotherhood connected government there. So I think we do definitely see that, and we have to tie that into the longer-term history of the region, and and literally for the last 60, 70 years now of the the coordinated strategy of attempting to overthrow anyone who dares to uh, raise the possibility of of Arab nationalism or any type of secular government there in the region that might might not have these more radical elements in control of what we've seen for decade after decade is the US and the Brits and uh, and Israel and other interests in the in the region have overthrown government after government after government and replaced them with more and more radical uh, governments and of course we can tie this back to Iran and uh, to Egypt under Nasser and all of this I mean it is a very long history but it's very much a part of that coordinated strategy, I think. And we'd have to be naive and foolish and historically ignorant not to see it. Sure, sure. And I love the, the subliminal, I don't love it, but the subliminal subtext of us now having a, a president who is, you know, half black and we're continuing to invade, you know, the, I, that's what I said when he was reelected is the, the invasion of Africa will continue. And to an extent, I think that's, that's true. If it was a George Bush or a Mitt Romney, I think that the, the liberal left maybe oh no we can't we can't be doing this but because <laughs> because there's someone sitting in power who has some pigment to his skin and you know this is not really looked at as i think uh... so yeah sending troops to 35 african nations and and it's barely even a news story right i mean and i i agree i don't think george bush could have pulled that off i don't think mitt romney could have pulled that off but under obama you know that's the part of the agenda that they're able to push forward, so that's what they do with him. Yeah. All right. Any thoughts on that, or should we move on, James? Uh, I agree. I, I think uh, the only caveat I would add is that uh, I think the left were also perfectly happy with Clinton's uh, bombings of, <laughs> of various parts of the world. So I think it's really just the yeah. left-right thing more that's so a, than the pigment. Yeah. But uh, certainly the, the uh, it does add a certain left cover for Obama, doesn't it? Sure. Sure, it's a, it's a, it's a valid point. All right. In a recent interview featuring Paul Craig Roberts on Russia Today, which I found to be one of the funniest interviews I'd ever seen. For more analysis on the gun control debate in the U.S., we're joined live by Paul Craig Roberts, a former assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Mr. Roberts, President Obama hasn't mentioned the assault weapons ban since the second school shooting at Virginia Tech in 2011. And he did nothing during his first term to revive the gun control debate. Did it have to take the deaths of 20 children for the president to address the issue? 
Well, you know, um, we had in the 20th century prohibition in which alcohol was prohibited. You weren't allowed to manufacture it, or sell it, or buy it, or drink it. And alcohol was everywhere. Everyone had alcohol. And it was the origin of the American criminal gangs, Al Capone, John Dillinger. And they all made millions and millions of dollars with bootleg alcohol. Currently, in fact, for many decades now, we've had the war on drugs. And narcotics are illegal. You're not allowed heroin or cocaine or marijuana. Uh, we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars, and yet the drugs are everywhere, and it has enriched the, uh, the drug gangs, and the drug gangs fight over their turf and kill one another. So, so, so basically what you're saying is that we've reached a point where we need to start talking about gun control in a serious manner. So I'm going to ask you this. The National Rifles Association has stated that it is prepared to offer meaningful contri uh, contributions to prevent more violence. What kind of assistance do you think it means by this? Yes, I, I think they're just intimidated by the fact that little children were killed. Um, but my point is, uh, they won't, if they can't control alcohol and drugs, uh, they can't control guns. And so there'll be a huge black market in guns, and all the gangsters will have guns, just as they still do. And a rail system. You know, um, my own view is that since the United States is now a police state, I mean, we have the most extensive uh, spying on citizens in human history. It even goes beyond the imagination of George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. You can't have a police state and an armed population, so there's no doubt they're going to take the guns away. It's absolutely certain. And these kinds of incidents <clears throat> helps them, but they're going to take them away anyhow, because you can't have an armed population in a police state. Now, the trouble with these incidents is that you never really know uh, what happens. For example, here I am, I'm looking at two news reports. This is the Associated Press, uh, Jim Fitzgerald and John Christopherson, dated December the I just want to jump in there while we... Is this an issue about guns, or is this an issue about the people who are buying the guns? You have a lot of in yes. these incidences is those are the people who are said to be mentally uh, unstable to have those guns. And on one side, there's... Uh, people are saying it's the guns that need to be taken away. So how does a president of a nation that has a second... that has the right to carry these arms uh, decide on what measures to take in order to make every party happy? Well, if he can... if he can uh, declare that he has the authority to murder American citizens without due process, uh, if he suspects that they might be uh, terrorist in any way connected to terrorist, or if he dis if he declares that he can imprison Americans for life without ever presenting evidence, he can certainly take away the guns. <laughs> he, all he has to do is do it. But Great the point. point there. The point I'm trying to make is we don't really know what happened, and the news reports are inconsistent. For example, the Associated Press reports that the medical examiner, Dr. Wayne Carver, said 
all the victims at the Connecticut Elementary School shooting were killed up close by multiple rifle shots, rifle shots. And yet, all the reports are that the accused is found dead in the schoolroom with two handguns. So how did so he kill the kids with rifle shots with handguns? The, the inconsistencies in the reports, the same was true of the shooting in the movie theater. Yes, but either way, even with the, the inconsistencies of reports, at the end of the day, they are, there's, there are 20 kids who are dead right now, yeah, uh, but we plus don't others, and there's it. guns involved. We can't necessarily say it's because the media is writing, uh, you know, is, is sending out the wrong information. At the end of the you day, know, we're talking we about say, guns, and we're talking about we, people being killed. So where do we draw the line? Who has the power say, to draw that line? Well, I'm absolutely certain that today the United States Army killed at least 20 kids in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, wherever they are. And uh, we don't hear anything about it. It's only if our own kids get killed, then all of a sudden we get upset. The news is agenda-driven. The news is agenda-driven. And as I've already told you, you cannot have a police state and an armed population. And therefore, they're going to take the guns away. That's absolutely certain. And these events, whether real or not real, are simply helpful in taking the guns away. So the Americans are going to be disarmed. You can't have a police state and an armed population. It became apparent that RT was only interested in pushing the gun control agenda and not necessarily what Paul Craig Roberts had to say. You are a frequent guest on RT. Do you have any insight that you can give us into that network? And do you uh, have any opinions on whether or not RT seems to be uh, changing its tone? Well, I do, in fact. Actually, I could give two specific insights about that interview in particular. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, the first thing that I, I think people should know, I, I don't think this should come as a surprise to people, but maybe it does, I don't know, is that the anchors who appear to be conversing with the guest and having some sort of repartee, some sort of off-the-cuff conversation, are, of course, reading from a script. They have their, their questions prepared in advance. And, uh, and sometimes, very occasionally, I will get sent those, those questions before I appear, but more often than not, I don't know the questions, but they are reading them from a script, and we'd have to be naive to, to believe otherwise. Now, the best anchors can take what the guest is saying and go with that and sort of rephrase the questions or to transition from one, one response into the next question. But this was an interesting interview. I hope people will go and watch the actual interview. It was an interesting interview for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the anchor, I think, was one of the newer anchors and clearly, I think, more interested in reading the script word for word than sort of responding to what Paul Craig Roberts was saying. And I think that becomes quite apparent. Also, Paul Craig Roberts in the interview, I mean, obviously, this is going to be one of those incredibly rushed segments of, you know, five or six minutes on an incredibly big and expensive topic. And people who have seen my appearances on RT will, I hope, appreciate how I try to speak as quickly and mm -hmm. succinctly as possible to try to fit in as much information as you can. But, I mean, it's just impossible in that short amount of time. And Paul Craig Roberts is a very deliberate speaker. He takes 
takes his time constructing his sentences. They're, they're quite well thought out, but it takes a very long time for him to get his point out. And the anchor obviously trying to get to the next question very quickly will cut him off and, and say things to him. So I think this was just a, a clash of, of styles to a large extent. And clearly the anchor wasn't really taking into account what Mr. Roberts was saying, but I think that's because she was reading from a script. Um, whether this really represents some sort of drastic change in Russia Today's reporting, I know that Mr. Roberts did write uh, an article to that extent after he was on the program, but I don't think it, uh, again, I, uh, people can go make up their own mind, but I think if people go and look at RT.com, they will see that it is not really any sort of fundamental shift in the way they're covering this, this type of um, issue. I don't think RT really has a dog in the fight when it comes to the American Second Amendment. But um, but when you look at some of their headlines, um, they had a story up the other day. NRA goes up against UN over arms trade treaty, talking about the arms trade treaty, which is a fairly, I would say, balanced report, if you want to put it that way, in terms of, you know, the old myth of journalistic objectivity, where they quote the UN and then they quote the NRA and they talk about the differences. Um, or they have uh, stories up there about, um, you know, ammo sellers are selling out of uh, magazines um, because of the rush on guns. They have coverage of the Deport Piers Morgan petition. They even have a story, Ron Paul on NRA safety plan, government security, just another kind of violence. And I defy you to find any, any American <laughs> mainstream media outlet that would cover that, let alone have an entire headline, an entire story on that. So I don't think that RT, I don't think it's fair to say RT is, is suddenly changing its tune and it's, you know, supporting the American government or anything. <laughs> but having said that, of course, I am not here to cover for RT's biases. RT is Russian state-owned television. They do have biases. There's no doubt about that. And I point them out frequently on my own podcast. For example, recently on my episode 250, I was covering the uh, crash of PLF 101, the oh. Tupolev 154 that crashed in Russia a couple of years ago with basically the entire the entirety of the top military brass and the top government officials of Poland on board. And uh, RT, of course, came out when the Russian government's commission, which was headed up by none other than that impartial observer, Vladimir Putin, <laughs> when they came up with uh, their their findings that it was all pilot error and there was nothing suspicious about that. Obviously, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. And we have to look deeper than that. Or when they talk about the upcoming um, commission into the Litvinenko murder, obviously they're not going to be the, the, the source that I'm going to be turning to for the most unbiased news on that. Um, and so there are biases, and, and there's no doubt about that. Having said that, they have never once censored me or told me what to say or what not to say. They've never tried to you know, cut off something that I'm saying, oh, you can't say that on air. Um, so so I, I will continue to go on that outlet as long as they provide me an outlet to speak and they don't censor me. But uh, and but I think we have to be aware they do have biases, but I just don't see it in terms of the Second Amendment. I don't see what particular dog they have in that fight or why they would be, you know, suddenly siding with the American government and Obama in trying to, to ban guns in America. I just don't see that. And I don't see it playing out in any of their other reporting. So that's my take. It's a it's a great great take, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I, I, kind of my take on on Russia today has always been that um, they will report anything negative uh, about the American government that they can find, and obviously for it to be effective, they understand that people know where the news is coming from, uh, so they do have to try and be truthful about it. So that's why they will tie on to, you know. 
obviously kind of the viewpoints that that we subscribe to um and it's a lot more accurate than american mainstream media and i think with with the caveats that james pointed out you you can't go to russia today to get accurate news about russia (laughs) so um it it is it's an interesting news source i think they learned from american propaganda operations during uh, you know, World War II and the Cold War, and it, it's interesting to watch it play out because it is, uh, you know, they have their own agenda for for putting it out there. Um, at the same time, it's great to get voices like James and Paul Craig Roberts on the air, sure. you know, regardless of uh, of what media outlet. Cause I I wish they were on American mainstream media, but obviously that that doesn't happen. So. Sure. And, and James does, you know, you, James, you do an amazing job when you're on there. It's <laughs> the stuff that you fit in is such a small segment. And sometimes the, the, the host doesn't really even know what to do or say. They're like, okay, so James, for <laughs> I hope that so. insight. <laughs> well, a good example of that actually would be if people go back and watch, um, they had me on just as it was being announced that Osama bin Laden had been quote unquote killed oh. in May of 2011. They had me on and the, the anchor was a bit combative and was calling it, you know, conspiracy theory to be talking about oh you must believe he's still alive or things like this um but i i think in that was an example of where the 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 anchor was being a bit combative but i don't think that hindered my delivery at all in fact i think the way i played off it at the time went quite well and and it was quite a popular video for for that so i I, again i mean obviously it depends what anchor is speaking and and things like that but uh at, at any rate, they will have people like myself and Paul Craig Roberts on frequently to talk about these issues. And as as Andrew says, I think that's for the good. And it, as listeners of this podcast will uh, hopefully know that you have you have heard James on Russia Today if you listen to this podcast, because we, sometimes we, we feature uh, the audio from those those interviews on this podcast. And, you know, I may go ahead and throw that interview with Paul Craig Roberts in here that not the one that you did, but the one with Russia today. So we know what we're talking about, but I will also definitely link, uh, put a link in the show notes for, uh, the latest crashes of convenience, which I thought was an amazing episode. So, uh, well done on that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. And it's an issue that, again, didn't really get a lot of coverage in, in the alternative media, but there's there's a lot to it. And really, the, I think as people will hear when they if they listen to the podcast, um, I've really only sort of scratched the surface. There's a lot more to be done. But unfortunately, just being detached from Poland, not knowing Polish, um, it's it's difficult to get some of those sources. But there's definitely a lot of work, I think, to be done on that case. It's extremely fascinating. And yeah, and I think that's why I thought it was so good because you really just came out and said like, "This is what we know. This is what was covered, and here's some inconsistencies. I don't know Polish. I can't get much more into this, and it just leaves this big open, spe- you know, space for some some further investigation. And uh, as well as that that video of the uh, the guy who came upon the crash site, which is one of the most eerie pieces of video I've ever watched. <laughs> Uh, but Absolutely. yeah, leave some... and still lots of big question marks around that. I I can't. I mean, it's just amazing to me that there's still so much doubt and question about where that came from and and all of that. It's it's really it is creepy when you look at it. 
It is. So if anybody knows Polish out there and wants to get in contact with us and try and help figure out what was going on over there, that, that might be. I mean, they, I mean, like James said, that it's an inexhaustible search, at least at this point, for what, what really happened. And, and so recently, you know, it, that's the thing that struck me is this isn't something that, oh, in the 50s, you know, a whole cabinet was in the same plane. It just seems strange that in this day and age that a whole cabinet and, and president would be in the same plane regardless. And uh, yeah, the fact that, you know, it goes down and in the same woods as the uh, previous massacre. People are going to have to go listen to that as I ramble on some of the details there. Absolutely. Well, I, let me uh, just apologize in advance for my butchery of every single Polish name. So <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was one of the harder episodes to get through in that respect. Well, the listeners here have to listen to me read every week, so they'll, they'll easily, easily look past that. So... Um, James, you're located over there on the sunny climbs of Western Japan, as you like to say. Uh, what role do you think the Asia-Pacific region will play in the coming year, and, and why is it an important area to keep an eye on? Well, I think people at least got a taste of that in the past year as we started to see a number of issues sort of coming to a head here. Um, we had, for example, the, the Japanese-Chinese island dispute over what the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands, and I believe it's called the Jiao Islands in Chinese. And once again, I apologize for my butchery of Chinese. But uh, that basically an uninhabited chain of islands that um, it has become a, a sort of flash focal point for tensions between Japan and China. And there was a bit of coverage of that even in the American mainstream media earlier this year, um, which is kind of toned down a little bit, but still there is some tension there. I think some of that was the fact that there was leadership transitions taking place in both China and Japan, just as that was coming to a head. So there might have been some political grandstanding and political points to be gained from, from making something of that. But at any rate, it shows the types of tensions that are developing in the Asia-Pacific. And since for the last couple of years now, the American uh, government has been talking very specifically about making an Asia-Pacific pivot they're going to be concentrating more on the AP region, and I think we are seeing that in terms of deployment of American forces as well as American involvement in, in uh, multilateral negotiations such as the ASEAN conference and, uh, of course, Obama's recent trip to Myanmar, etc., so there is definitely a growing sense that there is, uh, there is something at the stake here geopolitically, and I think what we're probably going to see is going to be the biggest, most important trend in the 2013 is going to be the economic side of this, um, especially now, as I say, that Japan has a new prime minister who basically came into power and has been at the helm or been sort of the prime minister and waiting for a week or two now. And he came uh, into power basically saying he was going to open the spigots um, and just turn on the quantitative easing to infinity for from Japan. Um, and the Bank of Japan that has a couple of board of governors um, who are going to be up for replacement this year. So there's going to be a, a, a pretty big shift in Japan's economic monetary policy. And also we're facing the downturn in China. Um, there's even, I mean, obviously China cooks their books as much, if not more so, than the Americans, if that can even be believed. Mm -hmm. They're still <laughs> claiming something like 7% GDP growth, but I think if you actually factor that in, it's probably nothing near that. Um, China has definitely cooled off in, in the past year, and that's likely to continue. That can start to lead to some, some new t tensions, and we're seeing America starting to get involved in terms of, uh, as I say, with the, the ASEAN um, uh, multilateral negotiations, which is seen as perhaps one way to 
come up with some sort of counterbalance to China's growing economic, military, and geopolitical might in the region. So there's a lot going on, and I think that this will have, at the very least, I think the most obvious and immediate aspect of this in the new year for the for Americans and and listeners out there will be the economic aspects, because of course. America is basically just relying on sleep, cheap uh, Chinese uh, slave-made goods mm-hmm. for a lot of its uh, econ- economic growth and productivity right now. So that is going to be where it will probably affect people first and foremost. But I think in the future, in the long term, there is going to be a struggle for dominance here, uh, certainly geopolitically. And that could, of course, spill into military confrontation at some point. I don't see that in the near future. But we are seeing the chess pieces being laid out on the board, and we will see more of that kind of standoffish type rhetoric, especially with the uh, U.S.'s biggest proxy in the region, Japan, versus their biggest, quote-unquote, rival, China. It's going to be an interesting year, and we'll see a lot of things developing on that front. So I'm, I'm going to be trying to put more attention on the Asia-Pacific region, because really it is, it is my home base here, so I should be... Uh, probably covering that more so than than things on the other side of the world to me well and if i can uh jump in here about that as i heard that uh japanese new or japan's new prime minister was talking about the government kind of taking over uh the bank of japan um is that still on the table or is that was that well i here, the situation is that the Bank of Japan was made independent of the, the government, I believe, in 1997. I want to say 97. So it's been a decade and a half or so uh, that it has now been independent. And basically what that means is that they've been able to resist the kind of unlimited quantitative easing that the government's wanted to, or at various stages, wanted to turn the spigots on. And the, the basically the, the governors of the Bank of Japan have kind of put the brakes on that at times. And it's been an interesting situation. They've had the 0% interest uh, for, for years at a time. And then just when the economy gets going, they'll raise the interest uh, to a quarter percent or even half a percent. And suddenly everything will fall off again. And that's kind of been the way things have been limping along here for a couple of decades now. And there is now finally the political will to do something different. But unfortunately, it's it's as I say, it's just going to be sort of, well, let's just open the, the floodgates entirely and just let unlimited amounts of yen for uh, uh, come forth. And really, the new prime minister does at least have the chance, even if not to directly take control of the Bank of Japan. At the very least, as I say, there's a couple of uh, governors at, on that board that are going to be up for renewal this year. So he's going to be able to appoint some people that will be more in line with, with his, his vision. So I think we could see a drastic change. We will see a drastic change in BOJ policy. I'm not sure it's going to be necessarily kind of formally taken over by the government, but at at any rate, the government's going to be able to yield more power over it in the coming year. Fascinating. It's interesting to to just watch, you know, as as the, the governments around the world kind of, I, I, you know, try and devalue the currency, like you're saying, and uh, the different wrang, wranglings and ramblings that are going on. And, uh, you know, I think the only ones that are on the, in on the central bank game are, what uh, the only some of the only countries in the world that don't have central banks uh, as they were speaking of here like uh, Iran, of uh, I think Venezuela, Syria. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm butchering the list, but it's interesting to think that uh, you know we all have a central bank in common, and uh, no one really ever talks about that. 
Well, exactly right. And of course, it has been talked about for decades. And again, people should look at people like Carol Quigley and Tragedy and Hope. And he talked very much openly about the setting up of the system and how it was going to be set up with central banks directed by the Bank of International Settlements in Basel. And all of this has been known and talked about for decades. But uh, finally, people are starting to, to become more aware of this and what it really means. And uh, and. I, uh, I I don't know. I'm not 100% certain. I want to say that Iran does have a central bank. It's not exactly run in the way that uh, a lot of the other central banks are, but it does have one. So sure. So sure. again, I think I think we all, including myself, I do not take myself out of this equation. I think we all need to to brush up a little bit more on the on specifically how these central banks are functioning and the differences between some of the countries. I mean, the Federal Reserve is not like the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada is not like the Bank of Japan. And I think people should spend a little bit more time trying to become aware of the, some of these differences and how they how they might play out. And at the very least, if you're Canadian, you should probably know more about the Bank of Canada than you do about the Federal Reserve. So so I hope we'll all commit ourselves. Uh, maybe it can be a type of New Year's resolution to to <laughs> st studying some of this in, in greater detail. Because, again, if they're spending so much time and effort trying to keep us distracted from these things, there must be something there to, to really ponder. Very, very true. It yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. In the Bank of England, uh, a major new appointment was is actually a Canadian person. So they're actually trying to... Uh, you know, take people and put them in charge of central banks in other countries to further internationalize those organizations and and probably to kind of standardize them and they'll use different crises the same way they have in Europe to say, right. oh, see, we need European-wide control um, over the whole European Union. We can't have these individual kind of rogue or, or profligate countries off on their own doing their own thing. So. So uh, a Goldman Sachs leader for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I'll just throw that in as another thing that we're almost certainly going to see developing in 2013 is we're at the very least going to hear more and more and louder rhetoric about the need for a stronger European Central Bank. Hmm. And there's a lot of ways that could play out and different moves that they can make in that regard. But I think the overall trend will definitely be towards saying, oh, look, we need we need more control over each and every single central bank in Europe so that we can more adequately, you know, uh, control and, and, and issue this, this common European currency. And, and that's the way they're going to try to fail forward with the collapse of the Euro. Hmm. Hmm. Almost. I, I don't know. Every time I look over there, it looks more and more like the fourth Reich. I know it's kind of a, a silly overused thing, just like claiming someone looks like Hitler or is acting like Hitler, but the way the European Union has kind of shaken out uh, and the devaluation of, you know, the the each economy there and then Germany just kind of takes all of that and, you know, makes cars out of it <laughs> and is, is single handedly kind of running the European uh, financial system. It's it's hard to avoid such a comparison sometimes. And uh, let's not forget that one of the aims of the Third Reich was to create a common uh, European uh, currency and a common European governmental institution. And that was something that was specifically being aimed for by high-ranking Nazi officials towards the end of the war. They even had a, a conference uh, or a, a sort of meeting of some of the top officials in, I believe, 1943, uh, 1944. And those, those documents have been leaked out. They're available. You can read about them online. 
And uh, they were talking specifically about how they were going to have to sort of go underground because they knew at that point the tide was turning. They were going they were going to lose the war, but they they were going to have to start to implant people in the business community in Europe to try to foster and keep alive the idea of this common unified Europe. And uh, lo and behold, you know, 10 years after the war ends, the Bilderberg group gets together, headed by ex-Nazis like Prince Bernard, and they are from the very first meeting talking about the common European currency and creating European Union. And a couple years later, they start to make that dream come true. So uh, absolutely, there's there's some pretty deep connections there. And I don't think it's uh, really, it, it's not hyperbole to say a Fourth Reich is, is developing in Europe, because quite specifically, that was what the Third Reich was talking about. <laughs> well, this this may be my greatest single moment in podcasting, so I'd like to retire right now. I'm going out on top. <laughs> I, I, I rambled something on that I had been thinking for a while, and James Corbett backed it up with facts. I think I'll I think I'll end the show now and move on <laughs> into that great sunset. Oh man! It's like... Anyway, uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, James, I as someone who has a Canadian mother and, and several Canadian family members, I do think that most Canadians know more about American politics than they do about their own politics. So I think it is important to get to know a little bit about what's going on in, in your home region. True. To be fair, I mean, obviously, American politics does affect people around the world much more than Canadian sure. politics. So, sure. so I, I mean, Canadians have a reason to know about American politics, but uh, it still doesn't absolve them of their need to know more about their own system. So, I um, again, I, that's one of the things that I think I can provide as a podcaster is that with my sort of international perspective, I can start to hopefully raise awareness of some of these international issues um, because I know there's a lot of excellent alternative media there in the States that are covering what's happening in the States. And uh, I don't think I can do much better than what's already being covered there. I think what I have to add to the table is, is some of the international analysis. Yeah, the, that's certainly important. And one thing I noticed when I lived in uh, Korea is how pervasive um, the the charade political stories in the U.S. are worldwide, especially the U.S. presidential election. Uh, lots of times, because I moved there in 2008, and it was the first question I would get asked, are you for Obama or McCain? <laughs> and uh, um, I was wondering if you've kind of seen the same thing in Japan, or if, you know, maybe it's less of a, a big story in Japan, but I know that, um, you know, in Korea, and, and I know that the BBC is... is uh, or and CNN are, are kind of pushing it worldwide. Um, oh, you know the the world waits with bated breath on who will win the U.S. presidential election and and playing up oh how different they are and this and that when it in reality there's you can't slide a piece of paper between them and, and the same agenda marches forward. So. Right. No, that's that's exactly right. And uh, just to put that in perspective, um, I have been a teacher here in Japan for several years, and I was teaching in some elementary schools in Japan here in 2008 during that presidential race. And I had children who literally can barely speak any English whatsoever coming up to me in the hallways during recess and things saying, yes, we can in wow. Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, and they would ask me what that means. I mean, they know how to say it, but they didn't even understand what it meant. So, yeah. um, so that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's, a, that's a telling anecdote yes. in a number of ways because it shows that of course the reach of the, this type of, presidential election farce that goes on every four years. But it also shows that 
even if the world is concentrated on it, it really just becomes a caricature. It's just, oh, you know, yes, we can versus forward or whatever kind of ridiculous uh, phrase <laughs> Romney was using, right? I mean, it just comes down to that level, and it's just sort of a cartoon thing that's playing out, and no one really really cares about it you know deeply um there's very few i mean I, just in the same way in a lot of people in america only on un, ever understand politics at that surface level of course people around the world have a similar um uh, take on things as well so i don't think there's a lot of deep understanding of the american political process or what's going on but at any rate yes certainly the the projection of that farce does go across the world and people do pay attention to who's the president and um, there's at least sort of lip service to the fact that this is going to make some sort of change or difference. But, of course, we all know better than that. But it is interesting to see the way that happens. But it's also interesting for me to note, you know, right now, uh, it, 100% all alternative media in the States, all mainstream media, everything is covering the gun control debate in America. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, here in Japan, it's it's not something that I think even most of the people here would be aware is happening in, in America right now. So it's it's mm -hmm. interesting to have that different perspective. Yeah, it certainly is. And kind of along those same lines. What do you think of the the Sandy Hook event and the the media coverage of it? Um, obviously, you know the the overt and obvious agenda is is gun control. But um, one thing that that's you know kind of confused me about the whole thing is why the why the twenty different stories that came out and contradiction after contradiction after contradiction, um, and then it it's at some point, you know, they kind of settle on an official narrative and it's, they claim that it's criminal to question that. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, from an alternative media perspective, I kind of feel like I'm being suckered into talking about it. And I don't know if you could kind of cover kind of both ends of that, where you think that's going. Well, thank you for saying that, because also myself, I've resisted getting into this story too deeply um, for a number of reasons. I think one of them, at, at any rate, I'm a Canadian sitting here in Japan, so for me to start really wading into the gun control debate in America, a lot of people would say, well, you know, you're a Canadian in Japan, what do you know about this this debate? And to a certain extent, I'd have to say, well, you're right. I mean, I'm not American. I've set foot in America a grand total of twice in my entire life. I've been there for less than two weeks out of my entire life. I don't claim to have any, you know, deep insight into American culture except for what's pervaded in the media. And, of course, we all know that's greatly skewed. So I, uh, I uh, to a certain extent, I don't want to get into it in that, that degree because, again, there's a lot of, I mean, every single media outlet in the States is covering this and I think doing a better job than I could do. But when it comes to the, uh, the inconsistencies in the story, etc., I know that there are things that are being covered up and there are there are ridiculous narratives that are being, you know, cast into set into stone right now. And they're saying, if you know, it's a criminal to question it, all this. But I want I want to look at this story on the meta meta level. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. And one of them is to say, well, regardless of whether or not this particular shooter actually did this and whether or not it's all just some cover up for something else that happened or whatever happened. I, I do know there are mentally deranged people in the world who literally can be set off by the 24-7 coverage of things like this to go and try to do it somewhere else. And I, I truly do think that the media has blood on their hands for the way they have covered mm. things wow. from Columbine on. The way they cover these stories, I truly do think that some of these shootings truly would not have happened without the type of media coverage that they get. 
So, um, so I don't don't want to play into that. I'm very resistant to playing into the, the the sensationalistic coverage of this. It's one thing to cover a story. It's another thing to to cover it incessantly, 24 seven, to put it in people's faces, to shove it down their throats, and to, in one way or another, glorify and deify these shooters. Um, everyone knows the name of the the Sandy Hook shooter now. Everyone knows That's the right. name of the Batman shooter. Everyone knows name of the Columbine shooters. No one can, well, almost no one can name any of the people who were killed by these people. That is a fundamentally skewed way of looking at this, and it, it puts things in, the, in completely the wrong light. So I, I'm very hesitant to wade into this, especially now. I could imagine this is the type of thing that maybe months from now, when this is not the central issue, I could look back on it and, and do some, some real digging and research into it. But right now, it's just too much of a fresh wound. And I understand there is the need to, certainly if there is gun control legislation and things that will come out of this, there is a need for it to be covered. So I'm not saying that it shouldn't be covered at all, but just personally, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to get into this. And then I guess the other way to look at this um, on the meta level, when we're talking about the way that the media uh, covers events like these, Oh, sorry. Oh, God. I just completely lost my train of thought. On <laughs> there was another reason <laughs> to look at this from a meta level, and it had to do with what you were saying. Well, that's, that's It'll okay. come back to me in a second. <laughs> Andrew, I'm sure you have a bunch to say. I do, too. So go ahead, Andrew. Well, yeah, and I, I think where you're, you're going, James, is uh, kind of the why media covers it the way that they do with the 24-7, uh, you know, and with the the crazy inconsistencies and then they can just act like those never happened. Um, and then the alternative media obsesses over the inconsistencies uh, and sometimes jumps to conclusions the other way about, you know, uh, there were reports of another shooter, therefore there must've been another shooter. Therefore it was a government operation. Right. Um, I've even seen, you know, people claiming that, that this guy, you know, must be innocent. And it's, it's kind of frustrating because we don't know. And I think that's one of the, um, now because we don't know, um, we can safely say that no government legislation should be crafted from an event where we don't really know what happened. Mm. And I think it's the, the same thing. Um, you know, when the media starts hyping up, Oh, look at the evil tyrant in this other country that we've, that no one in our audience knows about. Um, but now everyone has to care because we're going to show some dead kids. And it, it's just like, you know, they, they flash the dead kids and they, they wave a flag and say, this is the bad man. We have to go get him. And people end that's up. That's right. And, and just before I forget again, I'm sorry, but you're okay. exactly right. And that's what I, where I was going to go with this. That's the other aspect of this is that this constant coverage creates a momentum and creates a hype and a panic around the subject of gun control or whatever issue they want to push out of this. That even if the alternative media is there trying to point out inconsistencies and things, they're still in a way playing right. into the hype of the moment and still making it seem that this is, I mean, this is the issue that has to be dealt with now. It ha There has to be something happening now. It still plays into that panic and the fact that, again, to the people out there who are listening and watching, this is the only issue in the world that matters right now and yeah. something has to happen right now. It creates that crisis type feeling and moment which can then, of course, be hijacked to bring in the legislation or whatever. Can you imagine what it would be like if if this type of story happened and people tuned out of the media in droves instead of tuning into the media in droves? Because, again, 
just as much as we can blame the media for this to on the other side of this there's a lot of people who want this constant coverage and they want to see this and viewership and listenership goes up in the wake of an event like this and uh and i think we all have that responsibility to to step outside of the the hype and the the 24 7 coverage to take a wider view of what's going on and to see you know whether or not we can maybe deal with this at a point at which we're a little more level-headed rather than right when the the wounds are freshest and everything is i mean obviously that's what they're trying to do but Mm -hmm. uh, we play into that hype when we give this the attention that they want it to be given whether that attention is to play into the mainstream narrative or to try to question it it's still playing into the sort of hype crisis mentality that people have right now james i think you hit the nail on the head right there so well they're so good at cultivating that feeling of shock, right? I think Naomi Klein did something on the shock doctrine, and and they're so good now. The media at large is so good at, at just cultivating this, this oh my gosh, have you tuned in? Join the rest of the world as we all tune in to look at this crisis. And then you know, dead kids. There's nothing more painful to look at than dead than dead children. And and I, I'm not trying to you know, none of us are trying to to uh, to play that down at all. It is a tragedy, but the way that it's it's shown it, it cultivates a oh my gosh we must do something you know join us the 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 uh, the hive mind as we figure out some way to to solve this I think Chris White actually said years and years ago and I I, I just remembered it uh, when 9/11 happened everybody tuned in right and it's almost like we were under a, I won't you know like a spell or something like we really witnessed something that really had an effect on us and. You know, I think I speak for actually all three of us because I know our stories who, you know, we didn't come out of that spell for years, you know, for four or five years, uh, for at least for me. Um, So, you know, Chris said, you know, I think Chris White said, uh, you know, when something is on television and everybody says, you got to go check out the TV, you know, you got to go see what's Mm -hmm. going on. Maybe just don't and think about it logically and hear the story because you know if i hadn't checked out 9-11 and people came to me and said you know three buildings collapsed from two planes and you know it's the biggest you know towers in the world or whatever i maybe i could have thought rationally because and and now i mean 9-11 was a child's play i mean they i mean they really can as far as the panic that sets in you know now it it can it can go worldwide with twitter and facebook and all of these things in just seconds just matter of seconds and while it's a wonderful thing and i'm not, you know the internet while we can you know talk to you in japan and and whatnot we now live in an era where you know it's easy to just send out panic and i, I think that's what we're kind of witnessing well said well said and uh, and it's another thing to think about i mean global government is more of a possibility when you have this global hype panic crisis that they can be unleashed with this type of coverage and and right now this is i think this is very much an american phenomenon that's what's happening with sandy hook but we can imagine of course how this can happen and play out worldwide with this type of coverage absolutely and and it it seems like the kind of panic time pressure coverage that's how all I shouldn't say all, but that's how all the large legislation is passed in the U.S. now. They did the same exact thing with Obamacare. They set arbitrary time limits, you know, this whole fiscal cliff thing. It's like, like, oh, here, you know, four days. You, you've got financial channels showing four days and 17 hours until the fiscal cliff deadline. <laughs> and um, it's just it's such a charade. And it it's it's 
designed for a specific purpose to to give people the impression that <laughs> politicians are actually working and trying to solve something um, and aren't just like posing for cameras before uh, screwing everyone over yet again. So it's kind of for an agenda that they have no control over and, and couldn't stop if they wanted to and, and have been paid off not to want to. So, um, you know, it, it is just that it, that I think cable new the cable news networks, um, you know, have taken things to a whole new level. And in truth, they, they get really lousy ratings until there's a mass shooting or something. And then everyone does feel the need to turn in and, and try to dissect every single detail of it. Indeed. And, and people might be able to cast their minds back a, a few months ago on uh, Fox News. They were covering a live police chase that was happening. Oh, yeah. And Gosh. then they they kind of accidentally, oh, we left the camera on while the guy went out and shot himself in the head. And uh, they came back and immediately they apologized. Oh, we shouldn't have shown you that. Oh, we're so sorry. And uh, but of course, they're not going to stop doing the equivalent of that, whether it's at Sandy Hook or anywhere else, because it is what people want to see. People will tune in in droves to see this. So in a way, you can't you can't blame the media per se. I mean, if you look at it as a business model, they're just providing what their customers want. And it's a question we have to really question what it is that we, we're doing here, what what it is we want to see, what it is we're we're enticed by and whether or not there's a way to suppress these animal urges of ours to just see, you know, death and violence and, and all of this spectacular action and whether or not there's a deeper meaning to what it even means to, to be tuning into the news. What, what is it that we're trying to get out of this interaction? And, uh, and there's a lot of, I think, deeper societal conversation that needs to go on on that. But I don't, I don't pretend that's going to be solved anytime soon. Right. But, and at the, at the same time, though, I think when people are given a choice, um, mm. you know, with alternative media, with the Internet, lots of people end up choosing alternative media, choosing, um, you know, to get their news through other things. I know when something, you know, a big story happens or what have you, I much prefer to read the information than to watch it because I feel like I, I feel, you know, it's a different brain process to go through and it's easier for me to process it kind of non-emotionally um, and to actually get information from something if I'm reading it rather than watching it on television. So. Well, my, my hat's off to you for that stand because obviously there's no doubt there's all sorts of manipulation visually and audio in, in terms of audio when we are watching the, the, you know, either even the alternative media, but of course, especially the controlled corporate media, it's the way they present the information and the flashy effects and the sound effects and the spinning globes at the bottom and all of the things that they do to, to, to distract you, to subliminally suggest things to you, to put you in a, a certain mind state and to, to make that sensational horror all the more sort of an experienced reality for people. So um, absolutely, it's it, it. There's a lot of good to be said about the way that the internet is spreading, mm -hmm. you know, information, etc. But in to a certain extent, it is turning us as the internet becomes more video and audio based from a, a print culture more and more into a visual visual auditory culture, which has been something we've been a path we've been on for half a century. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but I think we have to be more aware of the way that we can be emotionally manipulated through this, this presentation of information. So, um, so there's a, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. 
Sure, sure. And you know, a good example, I thought, was when you uh, and James Evan Pilato on uh, New World Next Week covered, I think you brought it up, actually, and uh, in your prediction for the person of the year next year would be, or the person <laughs> of, the, of this last year was you, and not necessarily you as in James Corbett, but uh, each of us out here uh, individually and what we can do. And you brought up the uh, the Tim Horton uh, story out of your home and native land of Canada, of Canada, of Canada. Canada. Do you want to share that with the listeners real quick? Cause I think it's a good example of, you know, things that aren't covered in mass media. And here's something that, you know, finally got the nod, even though, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, you know, have the coverage of, of course of, of Sandy hook or even other things. Right. So this was just a, a silly little story that just made some coverage on uh, yahoo.ca of all places, um, where it was at a drive through at a coffee and donut shop, Tim Hortons in Canada. It's, it's one of the most iconic, popular Canadian kind of places. And someone at the drive through paid for the coffee of the person behind him in line. And that started a chain of customers that ended up being 228 customers in a row ended up buying the coffee for the next person as just sort of pay, pay, pouring it forward, they said. And uh, that, so it, it lasted all day. And basically, they, they ended up making just making a little news story about this. And of course, it just receives a little, you know, tiny little link at the bottom of the page that no one really looks at. But that, to me, at the very least, is the type of story that we could be choosing to focus our attention on as a society rather than just death and violence and destruction. And I understand why we focus on death and violence and destruction. I understand why we are even biologically hardwired to do that, because obviously when we see death and violence and destruction, we want to know more information so that we can prevent it from happening to us and our loved ones. That's a natural response, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we have to realize that when we only concentrate on death and, and destruction and violence, then we will start to emulate that. We will start to change our view of the world around that information. And it goes to even stories I remember hearing about um, in little rural towns in Saskatchewan in Canada in the middle of nowhere, where there's you know a little town of 100 or 1,000 people or whatever that haven't had a, a break in break and enter in, in decades and yet half the town has security systems installed because they're constantly watching the news about break and enters and violence and armed robberies and you know things like this. So there's this impression that we live in this world of death and violence because that's what we're constantly exposed to. And if we choose to focus more on uh, our attention on stories like this, or at least a, a, a larger portion of our attention it doesn't have to be the only thing we focus on we don't have to put on rose-colored spectacles but at the very least if we just start to think more in terms of what the good things that we can do for others the good things that other people are doing on an, every single day of the year there are good people in this world that are doing charitable and kind acts for each other and it doesn't have to be buying coffee for someone or you know anything along those lines but those types of stories can really truly shape our, our perception of the world that we live in and it can make us into different people because we will start to perceive the world differently if we choose to take more of our time to appreciate things like that absolutely but uh, the question that runs through my mind is is what happened to break the string at the <laughs> at the coffee <laughs> actually that that was a kind of a sad story there was someone who um Ended up, he ended up getting four his four coffees paid for, but 
the next person in line had ordered three coffees, so he didn't pay for that. So he actually oh, no, he would have saved wow. a coffee on the deal, but he ended up not doing it. So that, that, that's the kind of what I was You know, if if I was in line by myself and there was a school bus or something behind me, I might hesitate a little bit. But <laughs> but that that is sad that he uh, he would have come out ahead on the deal and still didn't take it. That's funny. <laughs> oh well. Reminds me of that uh, the podcast you did on Meet Bill Gates, where he was standing in line at Seven Eleven over here in Seattle, and he uh, refused to give a quarter. Or the person behind him, he took a quarter from him, I think. Yeah, yeah. He he had a coupon for ice cream, but he couldn't find it, so he ended up taking a quarter from someone in line. Ridiculous. Well, you know, it's a great it's a great story, and I'm glad you covered it, uh, James. Because, well, not that one, but the the Tim Horton thing, because that is the sort of thing that you know these these things are going to happen every day. You know, people are going to stop and and, and you know taking a homeless person for a night or, or or buy them a meal or you know do these sort of things. But you know, I think we do you know have to kind of look at ourselves and our culture around us when those aren't the stories that, that lead, you know, instead it's this, uh, I don't even know, like a honey boo boo or something like this. Some of these like, uh, reality TV stars, you know, that are, you know, where people kind of just tune in for the train wreck of it all. When we could be tuning in to, you know, look at this person who's, who's, you know, gone out and, and is, is feeding the homeless or, or, or doing that sort of thing. And so it's important not only to, to point, to look for those, but also to, to maybe get involved and do those things ourselves. And, you know, as Christians, uh, we we need to be out there and, you know, spreading salt and light to the world. And it's not necessarily just sitting around predicting, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen this year? We better talk about it. It's really changing our uh, the people around us. You know, the, the you know, the guy who changed the world, Jesus, only had 12 people. And then it was, you know, them and, and they went out and, and changed the world. So, you know, we don't need we, while we have mass media devices. These will be handy, you know, coming headed into the future. But we we definitely have. Uh, the power in our own hands uh, to to uh, to uh, to make a, a difference, I guess. Amen to that. And and absolutely, we can predict all we want, but that takes us out of that equation. If we're just sitting here looking at trends and looking at things that could happen, um, we are a part of this. We are we are we affect the world around us, and we can actually take some of this into our own hands and do what we can on our own local level to change the world around us. And it may not be kind of world-changing, world-shattering news, but at any rate, that is what makes up the world. It's a, it's a lot of people out there just trying to make their community a better place to live in, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that's that's an important thing that we have to keep in mind for the new year. One of the things that's constantly talked about in prediction shows, oh, it's the coming collapse, the coming collapse. How are you going to survive the coming collapse? And sure, that's uh, something that's valid to talk about, but the best way to survive the coming collapse is start investing in the people around you right now. Because people are going to be the only Absolutely. thing that's important. Because the, the day the power goes off and you don't have money and you you know you're hoping to get rice or, or something like this, the only it's going to take us from our Twitters, from our iPhones, from our computers and our mass media devices. And they, they were actually talking about this on Future Quake South Af or Southern Hemisphere uh, this a couple of weeks ago. But once all of those things are gone, it brings you right back to the basics. And then what is it? It's your wife. It's your family. It's your your children. That's all that's going to matter. Your neighbor, hey, my neighbor's out, you know, short of food. Can what can we do to help? And whether or not we, you know, who cares? Like really, even if you get like, even if Tim Kilkenny perfect, like I perfectly predict when the the collapse will happen. I'll tell you the date and everything. Who cares? Because the day after, everybody's going to be, you know, on their own, and and it's and it's all going to rely on you know on God and 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 the uh, the connections that we've made uh, 
up until that point. So even if you can predict the collapse, it's important to start, you know, not just stockpiling, but investing in the people around you. Well, I did a podcast on this a couple of years ago called The Coming Anastrophe, where I was talking about um, my Christmas Eve tradition, It's a Wonderful Life. And I was looking at that as an example of the way that uh, we can imagine not a collapse and a catastrophe and everything going to hell in a handbasket, but to actually imagine how people can come together spontaneously to actually build something greater than what existed before and, and can actually cohere as a community. And I, I called it the coming anastrophe. It was a, my attempt at a neologism to try to, you know, the opposite of catastrophe. I, I have since discovered that, in fact, that the word I was looking for does actually exist. It was co coined by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, nice. He coined the term eucatastrophe, which is the uh, it's this event that happens that suddenly changes everything for the better that you weren't necessarily expecting, but kind of makes sense. So I will uh, I will admit that I am not nearly as linguistically gifted as I had once hoped. I, I, sh I should amend the title of that podcast, The Coming Eucatastrophe. <laughs> and I still believe in that concept. I still believe that yeah. we can come together in a productive and spontaneous way to change things for the better. And if I didn't believe that, I don't think I'd be here right now. To, to be fair, though, when Tolkien used the word eucatastrophe, he was writing in Elvish, so it is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, this is... No. Go ahead. But, uh, yeah, it, it's... It, it is something, and... Um, you know, I think people take it too far as far as like, oh, you know, we manifest what we imagine, what have you. But the, but there is, I I believe that most of what happens in our lives is the result of intentional choices. And if your choices are focused on, you know, negative things happening and what will happen to you rather than what you're going to do yourself, um, you have a tendency to become just kind of a pond washed around by the, the mass media environment around you um, instead of kind of creating your own your own life and having responsibility for yourself and, and the people around you. And I think um, some of it, if you look at public education, obviously one of the big goals of public education is to convince you that the, all good changes in society came about because of government action and nothing good could happen without it. Um, but if you look at actual history, you know, in places without government, without, um, you know, welfare and, and these structures in place, people actually took care of their neighbors. And there was kind of a, a, a code of ethics of, uh, you know, if, if you have something and you can help someone out with it and you know they're struggling, you do so. Uh, you don't expect anything in return. But at the same time, if you're in need, someone else is going to help you out. So it's kind of a, um, you know, a non-binding, no government force, no, no, uh, <laughs> no power solution. It's just the fact that, um, you know, it's the right thing to do. You can't help someone out and you do so. And I think government fears that more than anything because it takes away their excuses for everything. I mean, if if we were developing, um, if we were a society where mass shootings never happened, um, there would be no government excuse to come in and, and claim that they had the answer or, or what have you. So that there's kind of, you know, it's it's a 
a societal breakdown, but it, it the only solution is on the individual level, not on the government policy level. Well, that that's a profound point because it goes back to the underlying idea of, of statism itself, which comes from the Hobbesian idea. It's, oh, in the state of nature, it's war of all against all, and that's the only way we can imagine it. It is, it is it, it's simultaneously the darkest view of human nature you can possibly take and the most hopeful because it says <laughs> it is a war against of all against all without government it's total chaos everyone's just going to be <laughs> slitting your throat uh, if they if if you so much as glance at them wrong but in order to take care of that problem we're going to create this reified you know special segment of society and these people will be the you know the the bringers of of love and light to the world and they will make sure everything is is running properly because the, apparently they are not privy to human nature that that yes. all the rest of us are i mean it's a ridiculous self-contradictory idea and uh and unfortunately we've internalized a lot of that and again i think that's a lot of the reason why we look to the the dark stories because again it tends to confirm this idea that a lot of people have that if you took away government welfare i mean how would people survive i mean absolutely no one would give anyone any money everyone would be happy to see their neighbors starving in the streets and it would just it would be total chaos and of course if people stop to really question those assumptions i don't think there are many people who would really go too far along that path without realizing there are different ways of, of forming society but uh, unfortunately we're not given the space to really think about that and and also to address what you said earlier, absolutely, I agree. This is not to be um, Pollyanna-ish about it or to be new agey or, oh, we can, you know, vibrate differently and change <laughs> the world or whatever. It's not along those lines at all. I mean, there is evil in this world. There are evil people in this world. And there will continue to be for the foreseeable future. But um, but it is a question of the way that we interact with that world. And if we're just sitting here cowering in fear of the evil, then we have in a, a key way given into it. The terrorists have won. <laughs> the terrorists have won. Well, you know, in, we actually live here in the, the great state of Washington, which recently has, uh, you know, passed legislation that allows legalization of marijuana and uh, equal marriage rights. And I'm, I'm left in this sort of limbo where I can't necessarily go out and celebrate with everybody or, you know, go and say that, they, you know, these, of course, these things are wrong or anything, because personally, it doesn't affect me. I don't care either way. And I feel like we fall too often into the trap, and I can see it happening around me here in Washington, where, where we go like, yay, big daddy government is going to allow me to get married to another adult. You know, yay, big daddy <laughs> government is going to allow me to smoke this 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 plant now. And it's like, well, yeah, that's great, but why? Why why thank the when it, why was it illegal in the first place? Why are we thanking you know this big you know, overbearing of, of the government for allowing us these little things. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it really bothered me to have to go get a marriage license. I'm like, yeah, really? I have what, to get government but, permission to get married. Like you know? you're an animal or something that has to license yourself, <laughs> right? Like you have to, you have to register I, yourself as a, of, I'm going to mate with this other animal here. <laughs> all of those go back to, uh, all the family court stuff and marriage licenses go back to eugenics and, you know, the overlords feeling that they should be able to decide who could get married and who couldn't. Um, and occasionally you'll hear some, you know, story from the South where someone denies a marriage license for an interracial couple and everyone will freak out about it. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that's it's like, why should the government be involved at all? And it's well, you know, uh, it's the only 
uh, reason I can come up with is taxes. <laughs> so if and that goes into a whole other section where government shouldn't be involved. But um, why do we need taxes? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Why do we? <laughs> but yeah, it is kind of kind of frustrating where where people feel like, um, or or you know someone feeling like, oh, the government says it's legal now, so now I'll do something. It's like, really? Why would, you know, just some bureaucrats or, or people voting make you decide how to live your life differently? I don't know. Well, also, this is an interesting thing. Another interesting thing that's come out of this Sandy Hook thing. I'm sure you guys have heard about the Piers Morgan deport Piers yeah, Morgan yeah. petition. Yes. And and a lot of these petitions are, are uh, on the White House website are gaining um, notoriety in, in the alternative media right now, which I, I, when I first started to see this, I was rolling my eyes. I mean, first of all, the idea of deporting someone for not <laughs> wanting the second amendment is kind of, uh, you know, that's a little bit hypo hypocritical. It's a knee jerk the first reaction. Amendment, you know, exactly. Yeah. But, but even disregarding that, I mean, the, the popularity of these petitions and the secession petitions and other things, <sighs> I was rolling my eyes at it at first because I, I even had a, a radio episode titled uh, Why James Probably Won't Sign Your Petition where I was trying to get into people's heads. <laughs> petitioning the government for things is not really the, the ultimate solution we should be looking for. But um, but in a, in a weird way, I guess in the long run, I could see this playing out in a, in a good way because when uh, uh, the website, the White House does not reply to any of these petitions, which they won't, Certainly not in any meaningful way, even if they give some sort of, you know, to, to glib lip service to it. What? They they won't let us secede, James? Come oh, on. amazingly enough, I don't think it's going to happen that way. But when it doesn't, I'm I'm convinced there are some people who are really on board with this and really seem excited about these petitions are, are going to be falling out of that matrix and, and maybe questioning a little bit deeper. Well, what what is the point here? What is the solution? And I, I hope more people will start to see beyond the politics that I think to a large extent are just dangled in front of us as a way to keep us busy. And uh, hopefully they'll start to to find ideas like this one where, oh, you know, we don't have to ask the government for anything at all. Um, and we shouldn't be allowing them to allow us to do things or not to do things. It should be more based on, well, the way society has been run for for centuries before. Well, how your parents taught you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and, the, you know, I'm starting to see those uh, petitions on the White House, you know, uh, website almost as re research. Like there's, oh, well, this is the, you know, the what, you know, I think, uh, Andrew, you've, you've brought up in the past uh, in reading Jockey Lul's propaganda that he points out that polls are for, you know, researching a direction that we can go. Like this is where the people are, you know, whatnot. And they show polls, you know, and, 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 and can, administer them. And I think that the White House... Can we get away with, with rigging this particular result with this election? Yes, it's close enough that we can get away with it. Right. Okay. And I feel like the White House, you know, petitions are a lot like that now, where they'll, you know, put one up and, and see. And then, and then uh, you know, my awesome, or I won't say awesome, but, uh, you know, people can easily just have like that knee-jerk response. I'll just go sign this petition. And that's it. You know, just like the same thing as James pointed out this year eloquently in the in the last word on voting, that even the, the idea of voting, that going and sitting in a booth is actually what's going to change your environment and the people around you, and 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 it's the it's the best way that you can do something is to go and and choose a leader, and I, it's just the whole thing is just silly. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> just rambling on. <laughs> But it's uh, it's been this way for millennia, and uh, people will continue to render unto Caesar. And 
Well, it's more important than that. <laughs> yeah, it, it would just be nice if it were um, if it were just kind of a, a group of bureaucrats far away that had no real impact on our everyday lives. But unfortunately, government tends to grow and grow and grow until it, it does interfere with your life. Although I, I think from the fact that people generally still treat politics kind of as entertainment um, or as kind of a team that they root for or what have you <laughs> shows that they don't actually think that it, it affects their lives that much. Um, you know, it's, it's still kind of like, Oh yeah, I was rooting for them to win and they won, you know, this politician won. Hooray. Um, but I, I think, you know, if government keeps extending its reach further and further and further, um, you know, people will start to pay more attention and take it more seriously because they're, they're feeling the effects of it. And obviously that, you know, that comes from an economic crisis that is, is going to happen at some point. I guess I could make the prediction that, uh, you know, hyperinflation won't happen in 2013 and I'm, I'm more likely to be correct than the, the <laughs> converse, but, um, you know, it, it's, it is going to happen at, at some point where, you know, economic, Hard to you can't spend forty percent more money than you make indefinitely forever without any consequences to it, um, and that's that's the road we're on. And but people, it doesn't matter to people until it affects their everyday lives. And I think at this point, it is affecting people's lives. Uh, lots of people don't realize it is. You know, lots of people who are receiving government benefits think of that as just kind of free money not coming from anywhere. It's just, oh, the government made the money and gave it to me. Hooray. Um, I think there's small business owners who are going from making money to not making money that, that see these things happen. Here, here. <laughs> uh, and feel it a lot more. I think if, if the, one of the most brilliant tricks the government um, did was to make taxes be taken out of your paycheck uh, instead of you actually paying them at the end of the year, because if people actually had to to pay, you know, four thousand dollar tax bill at the end of the year, instead of just having like, oh, I get a tax return, I got money back, <laughs> <laughs> and they get excited, yay! I got some t the the kind government was kind enough to give me some of my taxes back, but um, that was a brilliant move to take it away before you even have it. So I think um, I'm kind of rambling off on into into taxes, but, uh, yes, people, people tend not to care about something until they can see its effect directly on their lives. Um, because I think partially because we're kind of selfish creatures, but also because there's only so much you can think about and worry about. And if it doesn't impact you directly, you tend not to worry as much about it. The exception of course, uh, being what we talked about earlier when the, the story is hyped incessantly 24-7 by mass media and then everyone, it becomes kind of a shared experience for everyone, um, even though it's not a direct experience for anyone but a, a, a tiny number of people. James, thank you so much for hanging on the line and letting us ramble and ramble on with you. Um, yeah. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. I always uh, enjoy talking to you guys. <laughs> so, James, uh, like I said, thank you for uh, for hanging with us. Do you have any other uh, predictions you'd like to get to? 
just one. I would just like to predict that the Corbett Report will continue in 2013. I know some people recently been listening to my radio show were kind of uh, wondering, because I am ending the radio show, um, just that daily one hour a, a day on the weekdays was taking up quite a bit of my time. And uh, as soon as I get this uh, new bundle of joy that's going to be arriving in the next few months, it's going to be a lot more uh, work and very difficult to schedule live broadcasting. So I'm stopping my radio show for the new year, but I'm still going to be doing interviews, still going to be doing videos, still going to be doing podcasts, and all of that, of course, will be at corporatereport.com. I've even got a couple of tricks up my sleeve, some extra series I'm working on, some additions to the podcast, and uh, some new video series, etc. But, but I will leave that in the bag for now. But uh, but yes, I will be continuing in 2013, so I hope people will continue to follow at corporatereport.com. That's right, and uh, I certainly will, and look forward to each and every podcast as as soon as they come out. I'll put a link, of course, to Corbett Report in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us this year, uh, or this year, this uh, for this episode as we look ahead to the new year. And uh, everybody, yeah, like I said, should check out James's website, and uh, we'll try and be a little more uh, regular with our podcasts coming out. We've uh, had some technical difficulties and whatnot, and just been so busy with the holidays, but we're going to get back into our regular schedule and. Uh, you know, get him, get him out a lot more often. Did you have any final thoughts, Andrew? Um, no, just thank you, James, for for being on. It was it's always nice to hear, you know, ideas similar to ours, but articulated much better. So it's always <laughs> good to, to talk to talk to James and hear his take on things. And I'm certainly looking forward to the the podcast continuing. Um, I think it's it is the best bang for your. Um, listening time out there as far as um, both news and kind of in-depth coverage of, of stories that matter and you actually learn something where you know most news you don't really learn much at all a copy of this podcast as well as links to each story covered are available at revelationsradionews.com to contact andrew and tim or to support revelations radio news please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the contact tab or support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com. And thank you for your support of this podcast.